Welcome to the CSIS Cogit Asia podcast, where we think deeply and reflect on policy in Asia. I'm your host, Liza Keller. In this episode, we analyze recent developments on the Korean Peninsula ahead of the Inter-Korean Summit and a possible summit between Kim Jong-un and Donald Trump in June 2018. A brief programming note. If you want to learn more about the situation on the Korean Peninsula, be sure to tune in to the CSIS Korea Chair's public event on May 7, Spring Summitry on the Korean Peninsula, Peace Breaking Out or Last Gasp Diplomacy. You'll find the link in the show notes. Since the week before the Winter Olympics started in Pyeongchang, South Korea, news and developments on the diplomatic and security situation in Korea have come at a breakneck pace. Here's a brief recap. U.S. Vice President Mike Pence traveled to South Korea for the Olympics, only to be partly upstaged by the surprise presence of Kim Jong-un's sister. At the Games, athletes from the two Koreas marched under one flag at the opening ceremony, and the countries fielded a joint women's ice hockey team in the Olympics for the first time. Now the South Korean government, led by President Moon Jae-in, has attempted to build on the goodwill from the Games to stabilize the diplomatic situation, agreeing to a summit between Kim Jong-un and Moon in late April. Across the Pacific, the White House transitioned from trading barbs over a potential bloody nose limited strike against the North and further tightening economic sanctions on Pyongyang to expressing willingness for President Donald Trump to meet with North Korean dictator Kim Jong-un face-to-face. Annual military exercises between the United States and South Korean forces, initially pushed back for the Olympics, went ahead in early April, and Kim Jong-un took a train to Beijing for his first overseas trip since taking power after his father's death. There, Kim and his wife met Chinese President Xi Jinping in a four-day visit. Meanwhile, in U.S.-South Korean relations, the two parties resolved, at least temporarily, a dust-up over steel tariffs imposed by the U.S. by amending the Chorus Free Trade Agreement to allow double the number of U.S.-made cars into the Korean market each year and exempting Korean firms from the 25% tariffs. On April 17th, Trump also met with the Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abe to discuss the situation with North Korea and North Korea's ballistic missile testing and nuclear weapons program. And President Trump confirmed on April 18th that CIA Director Mike Pompeo traveled to North Korea in April to conduct secret negotiations directly with Kim Jong-un. To process this whirlwind of new developments, we turn to former intelligence analyst and current CSIS Korea Chair Senior Fellow, Dr. Sumi Terry, along with CSIS Korea Chair Fellow, Lisa Collins. They will break down recent events, assess upcoming summits and the players involved, and explain what's at stake for the United States, South Korea, and the security of Northeast Asia. I'll now turn it over to my colleague and Kajit Asia producer, Jeff Bean. Good day. My name is Jeffrey Bean, editor of CSIS Asia Policy Blog and producer of the Kajit Asia Podcast. Joining me today are Dr. Sumi Terry, senior fellow with the CSIS Korea Chair, and Lisa Collins, fellow with the CSIS Korea Chair. Dr. Terry, thanks so much for joining us on the podcast. Thank you for having me on. And Lisa, welcome back to the pod. Thanks. It's great to be here. So as we looked at the frenetic pace of news and developments on the Korean Peninsula since just before the start of the Winter Olympics in February, what moments stand out to each of you the most and why? Lisa, why don't you start? Um, I think for me, one of the moments that stands out um, was Kim Jong-un's younger sister's visit to um, South Korea. It was the first time 
uh, a member of their family, I believe, had visited South Korea um, since the end of the Korean War. Um, and I think that was a big turning point um, in terms of the improvement of inter-Korean relations. Of course, there had been some dialogue, I think, um, on the working level before that. Um, but the change um, in the amount of diplomacy and the um, the exchanges that happened after that, I think, were um, uh, pretty um, interesting from a diplomatic perspective. For me, um, it's actually President Trump's announcement that he's going to meet with Kim Jong-un. No sitting U.S. president has ever met with a North Korean leader. So this is very historic. I actually saw that announcement while I was en route to Tokyo in an airplane. And I just remember going, oh, wow, this is and just this is also coming from all that talk of lim- following the limited military strike, bloody nose, and all of that talk. And so this was a big whiplash moment for me, saying, "Wow, you know, it's what a turnaround," um, because it is very historic and significant. Yeah, I definitely would agree with that too. I think Trump's um, announced or the announcement that Trump would accept a summit with the North Korean leader, I think, was a huge shock to the entire Korean watching community. Lisa, you you mentioned it just a moment ago, but one of these critical recent developments was uh, Kim Jong-un's trip to Beijing, his first travel overseas since uh, taking over for his father. How should we read, you know, rolling up in the the armored train, how should we read his visit uh, and meetings with Xi Jinping from a North Korean perspective, given the situation? Maybe, Dr. Terry, you'd like to start. Well, it's significant because Xi Jinping has never met with Kim Jong-un until this moment, um, since six plus years that Kim Jong-un came into power, even though she has met with South Korean president multiple times, former president Park Geun-hye, and even um, Moon Jae-in. From North Korean perspective, this absolutely makes sense. China is still North Korea's number one patron, ally, security partner. So you need coordination before the inter-Korea talks and North Korea-U.S. talks. When his father, actually, Kim Jong-il, did the same thing in 2000, June 2000, before he met with um, then South Korean President Kim Dae-jung, he went to China. He made a secret visit to China. And then all that also then followed with meetings with uh, other leaders and so on. So this makes sense. I think Kim Jong-un is taking a page out of his father's playbook. Kim Jong-un is also looking for sanctions relief and other things down the road. And from North Korean perspective, you need China. They need China's help um, and assistance. So I think this really makes sense from Kim Jong-un's perspective. I mean, just to add to that, I would completely agree with Dr. Terry. What what Dr. Terry said, I think it also shows Kim Jong Un's growing um, confidence in both his leadership ability and his domestic um, power base, and also his growing confidence in his technical capabilities of his nuclear weapons program. So I think, um, I mean, there are, of course, there's a d- debate among the expert community um, about how far along North Korea is in terms of creating a um, nuclear-tipped intercontinental ballistic missile. But I think his visits um, to China and also um, his confidence in reaching out to the South Koreans in part is based on his belief that he has reached a particular point in his technical capabilities of his nuclear weapons program that give him more leverage than he would have had in the past. Um, And I think that is based on a lot of testing that they did over the last two, three years. Yeah, I I would agree with that. And actually, this was a good moment for Kim Jong-un, also in terms of image makeover. I mean, he got to go with his beautiful, young, attractive Mm -hmm. wife with other high-level officials from North Korea. Now here he is with Kim Jong-un standing next to Xi Jinping with all that sort of 
of, you know, being treated as a normal leader of a normal country, getting that kind of stature. So all in all, I think this really worked out for North Korea. It's Kim Jong-un is on the right track. And I think it also shows a kind of break with his father in the past, because in the past, Kim Jong-il's wives were never allowed to go with him anywhere. They never traveled anywhere, and they weren't um, shown in public. And so the fact that Kim Jong-un is actually showing his wife in public and trying to, um, like Dr. Terry said, remake his image as a leader, a world leader, um, on par with Russia, the United States, China. Right, a leader and a modern leader, right? He's this young modern leader that's doing things differently from his father. Even if in somewhat subtle ways and, and or overt ways, I want to ask about uh, speaking of leaders doing things slightly differently. It occurs to me you mentioned Kim Dae Jong's visit in two thousand or summit with uh, Kim Jong Il in two thousand. Uh, Nolo Hyun also met with uh, Kim Jong Il, uh, Kim Jong Un's father, uh, in two thousand seven. In both cases, uh, from a South Korean presidential perspective, those leaders had been in office for a long period of time, two and a half years, I think, in Kim Dae Jong's case, and uh, it was toward the end of. No Mo Hyun's term when he met with Kim Jong-il. We're less than a year into Moon Jae-in's presidency. From a South Korean perspective, it's really interesting that uh, the leadership has felt the confidence and the ability to to hash out a summit like this so early in in Moon Jae-in's term. Would you agree with that? And what, what do you think is driving that? Desperation, fear that U.S. was going in the wrong direction when it comes to North Korea policy. Uh, there was All this talk of limited military strike, I think that really spooked not only North Korea, but actually the Moon administration. And South Korea felt that they didn't have a whole lot of time um, to sit around here. They really need to sort of change this momentum from talk of potential conflict to peace. Um, So I think this also makes sense from South Korean perspective. Um, But again, South Korea is, I think, sort of stuck in this kind of um, difficult situation because they have a very, uh, cha- very difficult challenge lie ahead trying to navigate or trying to in- be an intermediary between Kim Jong-un and Trump. Uh, last time when you, you mentioned Kim Dae-jung, you know, Kim Dae-jung actually went to North Korea. When that, for that summit to be realized, he had to pay them a lot of money, $500 million in cash, actually. Um, but South Korea is now in a different situation. They have constraints. They have to also deal with the Trump administration. So we'll see what comes out of this inter-Korea talks. Um, But President Moon has a critical role to play. And I think um, also there are some domestic political imperatives that Moon was probably trying to push forward in in engaging the North Koreans so quickly. And I think he's got a couple of things. First, he knows that if he doesn't get anything done within two to three years, he, he will be called a lame duck president because the Korean presidential term is only five years. And so if you don't get something done right away, then automatically um, you have a very hard and difficult road to climb in the remaining years. And then also, I think economically, um, Moon was elected based on an economic platform in large part because much of the younger generation is looking for jobs, they're looking for job security, they're looking to make more money, they're looking for um, economic well-being. And I think with the security situation the way it is in Northeast Asia, Moon also knew that if he didn't create a more stabilized environment that it probably would have affected the South Korean economy. And so he was probably looking to engage um, both uh, the the Chinese eventually, maybe make it easier for um, there to be growth um, with trade with the United States. And I think he probably turned to engagement with the North Koreans, believing that that would create a better uh, environment in Northeast Asia. So what's on the table for the inter-Korean summit, I believe, will take place on April 27th? 
between the North and the South, and how important is this summit for setting the stage uh, for a potential or, or possible productive summit between Kim Jong-un and Donald Trump if that actually happens? I think it's very critical that this inter-Korea talks go well in terms of setting the stage for Kim-Trump meeting. I think President Moon really needs to clarify a lot of things. There's a different expectation coming from Washington and North Korea, even over basic concepts like denuclearization. President Trump tweeted and said, oh, now North Korea is interested in denuclearization. That might not be the case at all. Uh, When North Korea says they're committed to denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula, if the regime security is guaranteed, there's a lot there. What they're really talking about is concluding a peace treaty to feel so, so so the regime security can be guaranteed, which then means, of course, the end of U.S.-South Korea alliance and taking ejecting U.S. forces out of the South of South Korea. There's so I think this expectation is very different from North Korea and the United States. And President Moon has a critical role to play in terms of getting that kind of clarification um, and also lowering the expectation um, on both sides. So you, those, they don't come into meeting. Trump and Kim doesn't go into a meeting with this high level expectation, a very high level of expectation, and sort of because then there's a high risk of failure. Um, and of course, if the summit does not work out, um, risk of that conflict that we just talked about earlier goes up because you have just now used that engagement card, that negotiation card. There's not a whole lot of options left. Yeah, so I would completely agree with that. Um, And I think that the inter-Korean summit will be a testing ground for what will happen with the U.S.-North Korea summit. Um, And as some of our other colleagues have stated before, um, it will make a big difference how um, Moon Jae-in comes out of the meeting, whether he comes out with a positive outlook or with a negative outlook. And if he comes out with a positive outlook, then we can be hopeful that the U.S.-North Korean summit will go probably better, um, or at least expectations will be more grounded. Um, but if there's a really negative um, outcome for the inter-Korean summit, then it really does not bode well for the, the U- U.S.-North Korea summit. And I want to turn to the issue of the alliance. You mentioned uh, the USRK alliance. How are we doing on alliance coordination, especially given the potential or real friction that exists between the Trump and the Moon administrations on issues like uh, potentially alliance burden sharing and uh, certainly the chorus FTA renegotiation or discussion? I think from the South Korean perspective, there's high level of anxiety, uh, particularly when President Trump makes statement like somehow linking U.S.-South Korea uh, free trade deal with making progress on North Korean crisis, nuclear crisis. Um, statements like that does not help. Um, but given that there's high level of anxiety, I still think um, the Moon administration is doing what it can in terms of coordinating with U.S. government. It's just that our, from our end, I think our interagency coordination process, I'm not sure how good it is. Um, there's just a lot uh, that's up in the air. We just even we just have a new national security team in place. Um, so, but I think you know alliance is still strong, but there's risk. And I, I just think that kind of rhetoric coming out of President Trump himself does not help. 
Um, so with regard to the summits and the preparation, there's not a lot of time left. I mean, there wasn't a lot of time to begin with when the announcement was first made. Um, and I think that the fact that there are there have been personnel changes um, in the U.S. administration make it all the more difficult um, for there to be good coordination. That doesn't mean that the two sides aren't trying. Um, I think they are trying very, very hard to keep up communication and to coordinate as best as possible. But definitely the changes, um, I think, probably make it a little bit harder than they would have been um, to begin with. Yeah, it's tough to raise the degree of difficulty by bringing in a new national security advisor while you're in the process of figuring this stuff out. I want to ask about the big picture question of denuclearization. Should we expect that as a reasonable outcome of whether it's a a path to it or eventually denuclearization as a result of the the groundwork that the inter-Korean summit could lay and potentially U.S. CPRK summit. Is that realistic at all? From my perspective, it's not realistic. What is realistic is to, to think that, yes, Trump and Kim can meet and they can come out of the meeting with agreements on some principles. And that's as much as we can hope for. Um, and then let the lower level officials work out the details. And of course, that's when the hard part hard part will begin. I also don't think, um, well, I, I think that it's, it's possible that North Korea and US can come to an, another agreement. Getting to any kind of agreement with North Korea is not the problem. We have agreements with North Korea. We have actually multiple agreements with North Korea that spend 25 years. We have bilateral agreement with North Korea, 1994 agree framework. We have multilateral agreements, six party agreements, 2005, 2007. But of course, every single time these agreements fell apart over verification. So do I now think that North Korea will give up nuclear weapons and will absolutely see denuclearize North Korea? I think that's unrealistic. Um, and just to add to that, I think not only with the verification um, part um, that we'll probably find very difficult to achieve, but also probably when North Korea starts requesting some sort of sanctions relief, um, given the national security team that is being put together in the U.S. administration, it's going to be very hard for them to accept any sort of sanctions relief unless there's serious um, movement by North Korea, incredible movement towards um, dismantlement of their nuclear weapons program. So if there starts to be requests about sanctions relief, um, I think it's going to be very difficult for us to put together something that the North Koreans would ultimately um, be able to live with because they usually ask for everything up front. And so to have this piecemeal step-by-step request of the North Koreans to um, dial down or to remove sanctions, I think it's going to be a difficult process for um, both sides to hoe, unfortunately. So as we look ahead, obviously the Korea chair here, uh, you are hosting an event on May 7th that will sort of review the inter-Korean summit and, and look ahead potentially uh, with more detail. I, I do want to ask also, based on your comments, what is the likelihood if, if the summit goes badly that things deteriorate quickly, whether we're talking about the inter-Korean summit or, or potentially U.S. Uh, the Trump and Kim getting in a room and then things go poorly? Does that actually heighten the risk of, of conflict or, or the U.S. taking uh, some limited military action that could spiral out of control? I think stakes are very high because of that. We are using this engagement card early at the highest level. You can't go higher than Trump meeting with Kim Jong-un. So if that falls apart, I do think we are, the risk of conflict goes up. Also, uh, this new national security team 
from the United States uh, is the most hardline hawkish team on North Korea. Uh, Mr. Borton's views on North Korea is well known. He has written extensively about it, talked extensively about it. So I think if this summit does not go well, the risk goes up, risk of a conflict goes up. And this is why I think it's time for all Korea watchers and everybody who's interested in this. It's really all hands on deck in terms of trying to make sure, ensure that this meeting between Kim and Trump, if it takes place, um, to go well, or at least it doesn't fail. And I think to help ensure the success of the summits coming up, I think there will be a lot of um, coordination, trilateral coordination, maybe even quadrilateral coordination behind the scenes. And I think we um, have heard news that there will be a trilateral um, between the U.S., Japan, um, South Korea um, in the coming weeks before the summits take place. So hopefully some of that coordination, trilateral coordination, and perhaps even uh, multilateral coordination will help ensure that there's a more successful outcome. Great. Dr. Sumiteri, Lisa Collins, thank you so much for, for joining us. I really appreciate it. That's our show. Very special thanks to Dr. Sumi Terry and Lisa Collins for joining us. In the show notes, you'll find information about the Korea Chair's May 7th event and links to recent analysis by Dr. Terry, Lisa, and Dr. Victor Cha. We welcome feedback in the form of an iTunes review and rating, or feel free to drop the producer a line via email, jbean at csis.org. The audio for this podcast was edited by Ribka Gemalongsari. This podcast was written and produced by Jeffrey Bean. To learn more, visit kajadasia.com and csis.org. You can follow our Asia programs on Twitter and subscribe to the podcast via iTunes, RSS, or email on csis.org. Stop by our Reconnecting Asia site and check out our latest Beyond Parallel microsurvey on what citizens of North Korea really think about their nuclear weapons program. Also, be sure to listen to our latest China Power podcast with Bonnie Glazer and Carl Minzner on how China's return to authoritarianism is undermining its rise. I'm Liza Keller. Thanks for listening.